We are in the book of Habakkuk today. I know. Thank you, Ruth. Uh, we're in the book of Habakkuk today, so you can begin the process of turning there. Hopefully, by the end of service, you will have found it. Uh, if you have a church Bible, one of those that are in the chairs, we've listed the page there. Uh, we had been doing a study in the New Testament for uh, almost a couple of years, uh, and now we're going to be spending a, a couple of months or so looking at some of the minor prophet books uh, as well. Our goal here um, is to make our way through the entire Bible. Uh, and so we are, uh, we are digging into some of the minor prophet books. Last week we looked at the book of Nahum, the last two weeks, and so if you happen to not be here for two weeks, you missed the whole book of the Bible. Um, but we put all of those online. You can go back, you can listen to them. This next two weeks, I think, maybe two, maybe three, we're going to be in this book of Habakkuk. So let's pray. Let's dedicate our study of this book to the Lord. Father, we are grateful for the scripture. Lord, we're grateful for a firm foundation upon which our faith can be built. We're, we're grateful that we can go back, we can open up the word, and we could be prepared and ready to receive from you the very word of God. And so, Lord, we're asking that though this book was written 2,500 years ago, we believe that it's a living and an active word, that it's a word that can speak into the midst of our lives, our walks, the challenges that we, we face, the doubts that we sometimes have, or the faith which believes, and yet, like that man said, uh, I believe, help my unbelief. And so, Lord, minister to us, minister to this congregation through your holy word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I will give uh, some introductory uh, information about the book of Habakkuk by uh, connecting with and comparing it to the book of Nahum, which we, again, we looked at those last couple of weeks. You remember that Nahum, first verse of that book, it actually says the burden of Nahum or the oracle of Nahum. In the same way, Habakkuk is going to have a burden, something that God lays on his heart, this oracle, this prophecy that he is going to share. Now, in the case of Nahum, it had to do with, it was a, it was a prophecy for the people of Judah about the people of Assyria, or particularly about the city of Nineveh. The city of Nineveh was threatening to attack uh, the people of Judah, and Nahum was concerned about that, and God ministered to his heart about it. As I said, when we started that particular book, we, we don't have a definitive date of when it was that Nahum prophesied, but he mentions two events in history, and so we're able to narrow it down. The first event that he mentions is in 663. The last one that he mentions is in 612. So sometime in between those two events is when Nahum prophesied. This morning and next week, as we turn our attention to the book of Habakkuk, we're going to see similarly, we can't say for certain when he prophesied, but because of some of the events that he speaks of, we're able to narrow it down a little bit. And that's significant for us because what it does is it gives us a little bit of insight as to what's going on in the life of Habakkuk, what's going on in the life of the people of Judah that he was speaking to. We can narrow it down a little bit. Mention in the book of Habakkuk is going to be made of a coming invasion by the Babylonian Empire. So remember that Nahum prophesied to the people of Judah about Assyria. 
and how Assyria was going to come and attack them. And if you remember our study of that book, in that book we have a prediction of the coming battle of Nineveh. And the coming, of battle of, the coming battle of Nineveh is what destroyed the Assyrian Empire. You may remember from our study, they were destroyed by the Babylonians. That happened in 612 BC. Here, in this particular book of Habakkuk, no mention is made of Assyria because they're off the scene. Now, mention is being made of that new world empire, the empire that defeated the Assyrians, the Babylonians. And so this is a prophecy to the people of Judah about the Babylonian Empire. Now, we know historically when the Babylonians came against the Jewish people of the southern kingdom. They came in three series or three waves, first in 606, the last in 586. And so this book, if it's speaking about a future invasion of the Babylonians against the Jewish people in the southern kingdom, it had to have been written sometime in that time period or about that. And so the way in the book you'll see Habakkuk becomes surprised about the Babylonians, that they're going to be the ones to come against them. That seems to indicate to me that there has been no invasion yet. That Again, there's those three waves, that they haven't even gotten to the first wave yet because Habakkuk's response when God tells him the Babylonians are coming is them? He seems shocked. Now, if they had already invaded a little bit, he would have said, well, that seems to make sense because they've already come. And so I would suggest to you the book of Habakkuk was written sometime before, shortly before 606, and sometimes after 612. That makes sense? Right in that little window there. That's not going to change your life or anything, but it'll give you a little bit of an indicator of where we are, what's going on in the world. Babylon is becoming a world empire, and they're expanding their empire to the known world at the time with their sights set on Judah. And Judah, as you can imagine, is, can, will be or would be concerned about that. Well, look at verse 1. It says, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Different versions say the burden that Habakkuk the prophet saw. The book of Habakkuk is one of the shortest ver books in the entire Bible. There's only 56 total verses. There are shorter ones, but this is one of the shortest books in the entire Bible. Interesting, as brief as this book is, written now about 2,500 years ago, maybe 2,600 years ago, this book is directly quoted or referenced on multiple occasions in the New Testament. So this is the kind of book a lot of times we read through and we're like, okay, I got it, check it off. But in reality, in the, the time that the New Testament books were written, many of those authors looked back to this book and got direct direction on what to do in their life. They were able to apply it to their lives. On at least five occasions, the writers reference this book, either with, by directly quoting or alluding to or referencing it. And so it was applicable to them 500 years after it was written. And I think as we're going to discover in our study of it, it's applicable to us 2,500 years after it was written. I think it has quite a bit to say about the circumstances we face and as believers in God, how we face those circumstances. You'll notice this about the prophet of Habakkuk as we study. This is our intro, by the way. Habakkuk was a deep-thinking individual. He calls himself a prophet. Contrast that. Remember Amos said, I'm no prophet. I'm not the son of a prophet. Well, here Habakkuk says, I'm a prophet. All right? And he was a deep-thinking prophet who delved into sort of the mysteries of God, 
What is God doing? Why is God doing it that way? I wouldn't do it that way. I don't understand why he does, and so on. He's going to raise questions like this. Why doesn't God do something about evil? You ever thought about that? I do. He's going to raise the question, how can I believe in a loving, all-powerful God if he allows bad things to happen in this world? Do people think about those questions? They do. Maybe you have. Habakkuk is going to openly wonder why God does what he does, why he does it the way that he does, and why he sometimes seems like he is doing nothing. And again, they're all big questions. Our friend Habakkuk is a deep thinker. Those are important questions. And they're questions that shake a lot of people's faith. And in many cases, they even prevent people from coming to God at all. You may have spoken with people and said, well, I could never believe in a God that would allow. They shake people's faith or they prevent them from coming to faith at all. And what the book of Habakkuk, I think, will have the ability to do is it'll show us that such questions don't have to shake or have that sort of an impact on us. They don't have to shake our faith or prevent us from even coming to the place of faith. And so as we already read, like Nahum, Habakkuk found himself bearing a burden which was impacting him. You'll see, we'll see, he was deeply distressed by the moral and spiritual condition of his nation. And again, living as he did right around the start of the 5th century B.C., the 500s, Habakkuk, he almost certainly lived through a spiritual revival that came to the nation of Israel, or specifically to the southern kingdom of Judah. If you remember your history, your uh, Jewish history, you may recall that in the southern kingdom there was a king by the name of Josiah. Is that a name you're familiar with? Some of you, most of us, yeah, it's up there, you know, kind of thing. Well, Josiah became king when he was eight years old, all right? Uh, obviously, other people were helping him in the process of becoming king. And one of the things that Josiah wanted to do was bring reform into the nation. The nation, they were supposed to be the people of God, the children of God, and yet they had drifted from that. One of the reasons why they had drifted is they had gotten away from the word of God. As a matter of fact, the word of God was almost nowhere to be found in the entire nation. Well, in addition to that, other things were going on, and the temple itself was a mess, and they decided we're going to clean this place. Not, not the, we're learning this on Wednesday evenings in our study. Not, not what we might call the temple proper, where the acts of worship were, take, were happening by the priest, but in some of those side chamber rooms, they were a mess. And so this fellow, King Josiah, he orders that folks would go in there. They clean it out, and as they clean it out, they find a Bible, basically, or scrolls. And it's like the only Bible in the entire nation. Can you believe this? And guess what they do? They read it, and they begin to look at it, and they begin to apply the things that are said in that Bible to their lives and to the lives of the nation. And guess what? It impacts their lives. The nation is different because they're reading the Word of God and applying the Word of God. And it brought about a spiritual revival in the nation. That's around the year 635. Our friend here, Habakkuk, is prophesying around the year 610. And so he was almost certainly alive at the time of the revival. He saw what God was doing in the nation. He experienced what God was doing probably in his own life as well. But here we are now in the year 610, and the nation has gotten away from that. The fervency that they had in God had sort of waned. And they were unfortunately they had sunk to a lower place than they were before. 
morally and spiritually. And that grieves Habakkuk. And that's the burden that is on Habakkuk. What is going on in our nation? God, why don't you intervene? God, why don't you do something? Why are the wicked prospering? Those sorts of questions is what he is facing. Let me remind you of this real quickly before we move on. The way that God operated with his people in the Old Testament was stated very, very clearly to them. As the, as the people became a nation, you remember that nation went down into Egypt. Eventually, they became slaves down in Egypt. They were there for 400 years. Moses was raised up. He was the deliverer of the people. Moses led the people out of slavery, and they began to make their way to the promised land. It took them 40 years, not because of the distance, but because God had to do some weeding out of some people that lacked faith. But after 40 years, they were about to enter into the land that God had promised to Abraham 500 years earlier. Just prior to entering into that land, God spoke to Moses. It's recorded for us in our Bibles. And he said to Moses, here's how things are going to work. If you obey, I will bless you. I'll read it to you. He says, if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all of his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings will come upon you, and they will overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. And it goes on, it's about 15 verses. The word blessing there is mentioned like almost 30 times. You do this, I'll bless you in this way, I'll bless you in this way, I'll bless you in this way, I'll bless you in this way. It all goes back to that verse 1, if you will faithfully obey. This is the Mosaic Covenant. It was a conditional covenant. If you do these things, I'll do this thing in response. That passage continues... And halfway through the chapter in verse 15, it says this, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all of his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all of these curses will come upon you. And then it goes on and it lists curse after curse after curse after curse if the people do not obey. Habakkuk here is looking at a nation that is not obeying. And what he is crying out for is God to bring judgment. He's saying, essentially, God, where is the judgment that you promised in Deuteronomy chapter 28? Now, I struggled all this week. I'm thinking, I try to think about our nation, and I don't find myself thinking, Lord, bring judgment on us, because I live here, and I don't want that judgment. All right? And yet, our friend here, Habakkuk, he's essentially asking that question, God, why aren't you doing something? Why aren't you intervening? Why aren't you causing evil to stop and good or obedience to reign? The name Habakkuk, it's a Hebrew word that is a name as well, but the word means, the name means wrestling. And that's what this book is about. Uh, Habakkuk is wrestling with what God is doing or with what God is not doing in this instance here. And so we pick up in verse 2. It says this. Let me quickly, excuse me. He says, O oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. The law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth for the wicked. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Habakkuk, he prays to the Lord. I think this is an important point right from the beginning. If you have a problem with God, take it to God. 
Don't run away from God. Don't go in a different direction. And that's it. Forget it. Go to the Lord. Bear your heart. Let him know what you're thinking. Communicate that. He already knows, but communicate that to the Lord. And so Habakkuk does that. And in this prayer to God, he describes the spiritual and moral condition or decay that is formed in his nation. Here's a few things. He says in verse 2, he speaks of the violence that has become prevalent in the nation. In verse 3, he talks about the strife and the contention. In verse 4, he says how the law is paralyzed or how the law is powerless, how like um, sin and crime and all that stuff just sort of reign in the society and there's nothing that can be done about it. He talks about in that verse how justice never goes forth, or when it does go forth, it goes forth in a perverted way, where really it goes forth as injustice and not justice. He's troubled by these things. Habakkuk is troubled by the iniquity of the land, but his complaint is not against those things. His complaint is against God, who seemingly to Habakkuk is thinking that God is doing nothing. Notice what he says in verse 3 there. He says to God, why do you idly look by? Why aren't you doing something about this, he says to the Lord. In verse 2, notice, he says, I cried to God for help. In fact, in our English versions, the word cry is used twice in that verse. You can see it there. I I cry for help, and a little later he says, oh, cry to you. Uh, or I cry to you, violence there. So twice in our English versions, the word cry is used. In the Hebrew, it's actually a different word. So the first time it says, I cry to you for help. The second time it says, I scream to you. And so we could translate his words, I cried for your help. I screamed to you for help. And you haven't done anything. You sat idly back and have done nothing. That help didn't seem to come. Instead, as we see in verse 3, he says, God, you're not doing anything. You're idly doing nothing. Habakkuk says in verse 2, O Lord, how long? And that tells me that this isn't the first time he's prayed this prayer. It's probably not even the second time or the third time or the tenth time that he's prayed this prayer. It's a prayer of exasperation. God, how long until you actually do something? Why are you sitting back idly and doing nothing? Habakkuk is unable to understand what God is doing, or in this case, what he's not doing. And what does he do? He brings his complaint to the Lord. I think it's important to note, Habakkuk isn't struggling here because he was a man that lacked faith. He's struggling here because he was a man of faith. You see, if Habakkuk had believed that God couldn't do anything, there's no such thing as a real God that can intervene, well, then this wouldn't have bothered him all. Because he would look at the problems and he would say, what are you going to do? But he believes God can do something. And that's where the trouble is. God, why aren't you doing something if you have the ability to do something? So he's not a man that lacks faith. He's a man of faith. G. Campbell Morgan said this, this prophecy deals with the problems that are created by faith. It's because Habakkuk knows that God is holy. It's because he knows that God is good. It's because he knows that God is powerful. It's because he knows that God is strong that he asked the question, God, how come you're not doing anything? I remember the first time as a Christian that I wondered what God was doing. It involved not being able to secure a job. I had finished up college, and I wasn't able to secure a job in my chosen profession for a number of months. And... 
I even remember in this process saying, God, what are you doing? Those words is what came to my heart and came to my mind. God, what are you doing? And finally, I had been given sort of this job interview. It wasn't, I, I went to school to be a teacher. It wasn't even in that field, but I thought it'd be kind of fun. I said, oh, yeah, that, oh, God, now I understand why you didn't let me get a teaching job all those weeks is what it was. All those weeks that I couldn't get that job. Now I understand why, God. Now I understand why. And I went to the interview, and I killed it. Man, it was great. It was a great interview. I got to talk to the guy about the Lord and the process, and he was very interested in, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And I went home just waiting for him to call and say, you're hired. And he called back later that afternoon, and he said, what a great interview. Man, I really enjoyed speaking with you, but we've decided to go another direction. And I said, oh, that, that's cool. Thanks so much for calling. And that's right after that phone call is when I had my crisis of faith. God, what are you doing? I don't understand what you're doing. I don't like what it is you're doing. Now, I'll tell you this, not the bright, honestly, but I ended that with, but God, I'm still going to trust you. I think it's okay for us to tell God what's really going on inside of us because, again, he already knows. Now, I do think we need to be careful of our, our hard attitude and we're not a jerk or something about it or, or something like that. And I don't think Habakkuk is. I think Habakkuk comes to God with insincerity. That prayer that I prayed, I, I would say this. I think that may have been the first real prayers that I prayed to God. I had been a Christian for about five years. And, of course, I prayed other prayers. And I prayed the prayer to receive Christ and all those kinds of things. But I think this was the first time that I really opened up my heart to the Lord and let him know what was really going on within me. And it was a period of growth, I'll tell you. It was, a, it was a moment of growth in my life. Habakkuk here, that's what he's doing. There's something troubling his heart, and he brings that difficulty to God and initiates a dialogue with God about it. And God answers, which I think speaks to the attitude of Habakkuk's heart as he came to God. God answers in verse 5, beginning in verse 5. He says, look among the nations and see, be, uh, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told you. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. Now, the Chaldeans is another name for the Babylonians. You're probably more familiar with that. That bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward, like marching. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and they take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and they go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God, or that's who they credited to, their God. God answers Habakkuk. And as we'll see, it is certainly not the, the response that Habakkuk was expecting, and it certainly wasn't the response that he was hoping to get. I suspect Habakkuk was hoping to hear God say, Habakkuk, be patient. I'm raising up a king for the nation like King Josiah, Habakkuk, 
and there's going to be an outpouring of my spirit, and a revival is going to come, Habakkuk. Just keep trusting and waiting. I suspect that's what he was hoping God would say. Instead, God says, I'm going to raise up an army to come against you, uh, Judah, specifically Judah, specifically the Chaldeans. Again, as I said, the Chaldeans are synonymous with the Babylonians. So God says, I'm raising up the Babylonians to come in and discipline the people of Judah. Who are the Babylonians? We get some insight here in these verses. Verse 6, they are that bitter and hasty nation that marched through the breadth of the earth and seized dwellings that are not their own. Verse 7 tells us that they are dreaded and fearsome people that make up their own rules about justice and dignity. Verse 8 tells us their horses are swifter than leopards and more fierce than the evening wolves. It tells us their horsemen come from afar. They press proudly on. They fly in like an eagle, swift to devour. Look at verse 9. It says they come for violence. They gather captives like sand. Verse 10, they laugh at kings that try to put up a resistance against them. Now, in light of all of that, look back at verse 5, where the Lord says, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your day, that you would not believe if told. You've probably heard the expression, it's too good to be true. Well, in this case, the circumstance is too bad to be believed or to be true. Habakkuk had accused God of not doing anything about the condition of things, and God responds to him, I'm doing something. I'm doing a work in your day that you wouldn't believe if I did tell you. Isaiah chapter 55, it says this, my thoughts, this is God speaking, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, and so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I think there's something we all need to establish and settle. God is not obligated to explain himself to any of us. He's under no obligation to explain himself to us or to Israel or to Judah or to any one of us as to what he is doing and why he is doing it. And in many cases, and in most cases maybe, we wouldn't understand the decision that he is making anyway. He does, however, here, let Habakkuk in on his plan, which again, I have to believe, speaks to the manner in which Habakkuk came and approached the Lord with his question. That his tone, his tone was much more in concert, I think, with Mary. You remember in the beginning of, uh, I guess it's the book of Luke, where both, we have two stories. One is of a guy by the name of Zacharias, that's John the Baptist's dad, Baptist dad, and the other is Mary, the one who would go on to give birth to Jesus. And both of them are told something, and they're like, what? It tells us that Mary, she asked of the angel, how can these things be? While Zacharias says, how can these things be? Zacharias's tone, however, is more like, prove it. I won't believe it. And he was disciplined, as you know. He wasn't able to speak for, I guess it was nine months. Whereas Mary, is, her question is received by the angel and given kind of a sweet and a kind response. I think Habakkuk comes to God much more like Mary than like Zacharias. He doesn't come to God demanding that God answers his questions. He comes to God in humility and in confusion and in the bearing of his heart. And God is moved to let Habakkuk in on his plan. I've summarized it this way, just to help me. Habakkuk, you think I'm doing nothing, but in the north, 
I'm preparing a people that will come down more swiftly than lepers and more fiercely than lions. They're going to invade this land that you're so troubled by. I'm going to use them as a rod in my hand to punish and to deal with the unbelief, the immorality, and the inequity in your society. And again, I must suspect that Habakkuk had expected the Lord to intervene graciously to send revival, just like he had 30 years earlier. But when God answered and said it was going to be the Babylonians that come in and bring discipline, now that's going to raise a whole other problem in Habakkuk's heart, a whole other difficulty that Habakkuk is going to have to wrestle with. Habakkuk now is going to find himself, wait a minute, wait, what? Why would you bring somebody more wicked into our country to discipline us for our wickedness? That doesn't make any sense, he would say. Now, before we consider that, I do think it raises an intriguing question. It's a question that scholars continue to debate, even just people that are talking amongst themselves continue to debate, to debate, and that is this. If God was raising up Babylon to come against Judah, well then how is it fair or how would it be proper for God to later judge Babylon for coming against Judah? Are you with me on that? God's going to raise them up to judge Judah, and then he's going to judge them for what they did to Judah. That doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem proper. In the book of Isaiah, we have another example of it. There we read of the nation of Assyria. Remember that empire we looked at last couple of weeks? And we see that they are referred to, this is Isaiah 10.5, woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. They were referred to as the, the rod of God's anger, which meant that God was going to use them, you can read the context, to discipline the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. And notice, though, it says, woe to Assyria. The very next paragraph in that Isaiah passage will go on to explain how he intends to discipline Assyria for coming against the northern kingdom. And yet he called them the rod of his anger. Again, how is something like that fair? How is something like that proper? proper? Think of the example of Judas in the New Testament, Judas Iscariot. Most of us, I'm sure, are familiar. Judas is the one who would go on to betray the Lord. In Acts chapter 1, we read that Judas's betrayal was the fulfillment of prophecy. Long before predicted prophecy that this is what's going to happen and this is whom it's going to happen for. 116 says, brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke a thousand years, I'm going to add that, beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. And then yet, even though it was predicted a thousand years beforehand, Judas is held responsible. Matthew chapter 25, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had never been born. So the question then is, if God uses evil to accomplish his purposes, should those used to do that evil, should they be held accountable? I think it's a good question. I think it's a question people consider, and maybe you do. Here's some points that I have on that. Number one, before considering whether they should or should not be held accountable, the first question that we first must resolve is that they will be held accountable. So we're not on the jury deciding whether it's appropriate or not. It's already been determined that it's appropriate according to the scriptures. And I think we have to grab a hold of that idea. God says that those individuals that he used 
to bring judgment upon another would be held accountable for bringing judgment upon another. So that's the first thing Scripture is clear on. Babylon was held accountable. Assyria was held accountable. Judah or Judas was held accountable. And so whether or not we think it is right or not, we have to agree that that's what the Scripture uh, states is going to happen. Now let's go to the next question. Should they be? Well, I'll say this. If God determined that they will be, and God is just, God is right, then again, we must agree that they should be. If God determined that they should be, and God will do it, we must agree with God based on what his character is. God is good. God is just. God is right. God is holy. I think the problem may be with our understanding of how God works through the evil choices of the fallen. The question I think we have to consider is, does God create the evil, or is God controlling the evil? And there's a big difference. Creating the evil would be putting it into the heart of Judas or Babylon or Assyria to do this particular evil thing. It's not something they were inclined to do, but God made them do it by putting it into their heart. Controlling evil would be using the evil that was already in these individual or those nations' hearts in order to accomplish his purposes. We know the scripture, God is not the author of sin, but God can use sin in men to attain his, an objective. We all know the verse Romans 8, it says, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. And in that all things, that includes both good things and bad things. And so if God cannot control evil, then he would no longer be an all-powerful God. Are you with me? And so God's sovereignty demands that he be in control of all things, even in this instance, dreaded and fearsome nations like the nation of Babylon or the empire of Babylon. And so our wise and perfect God sometimes does use the sin already existing in our world to fulfill his purposes. And so neither Assyria or Babylon or Judas, none of them acted against their own will. They did exactly what their hearts uh, compelled them to do. You remember after Judas betrayed the Lord, that he came back to the, high, the priest and so on, and he said, I have sinned. He repented. It says, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? Even Judas's own words admit that he was the one that made the decision to do what he did, even though it was prophesied a thousand years earlier. Again, God can and does use already existing sin in our world to fulfill his purposes. And I think there's no better example of this than the perfect example of Jesus's crucifixion just outside of Jerusalem. There is no more wicked act than the murder of of God's sinless son. And yet through it, as the Apostle Paul would write, we who were once dead in our sins have been made alive together with Christ because of the work of the cross. And so it was a wicked act that some people did, and yet through it God accomplished his amazing and good purposes. And certainly we rejoice in that. And so in Habakkuk's day, God's purpose was to bring judgment on Judah for their sin. And Babylon would be the instrument that God would do that. 
Now again, though, this, as I said, it raises a second dilemma. Remember first Habakkuk came to God and said, God, how come you're not doing anything? God said, I am doing something. I'm doing something you wouldn't even believe if I were to tell you. Well, now that raises a second dilemma in Habakkuk's heart. And that is, why would God use a people even more ungodly than the people of Judah to bring judgment on the people of Judah? This would be akin to crying out to God about the state of the church in America. You know, you hear about these scandals and things like that, and it's watered down in the worship. And, you know, you're looking at this is terrible, God. And God's saying, don't worry about it. There's a people, they're called the Taliban, and I raised them up, and they're going to come in, and they're going to bring judgment on the church. You would say, what? what? God, they're even more wicked than we are. Why would you do that, God? Well, that's where our friend Habakkuk is. Babylonians, those people are nuts. They're crazy. They're evil, God. We're not that bad. Why would you bring us, them against us? This begins in verse 12. He says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die, O Lord. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You, who are of purer eyes to see evil, and you cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at the traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net, burn to Babylon. He gathers them in his dragnet, and he rejoices, and he is glad. Therefore, he then sacrifices to his net, and he makes offering to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Habakkuk doesn't understand what is going on. Now, what I want to do is I want to look at this, that those five or six verses, from kind of two different perspectives. There's, there's two sets of points that I want to make as we go through them. One of them I'm going to look at today, the next one when we come back together again next week. Habakkuk knew that Judah deserved to be disciplined. He knew that they deserved to be chastened, but he's astounded to learn who God has chosen to do that. I think sometimes, I think many times, we don't understand what God is doing and why he is doing what he's doing. So I think that's how we can relate with our friend Habakkuk. And that's how something written 2,500 years ago can be applicable in our lives as well. Here's the very important example that I think Habakkuk sets for us. It begins in verse 12. Again, I said earlier, Habakkuk means wrestling. And that's what he's going to do here in these verses. It wasn't you know, just sort of like, I punch you, you punch back. They're wrestling. They're rolling around together on the ground. God, why are you not doing anything? God, why would you do it that way? God, that doesn't make any sense to me. I suspect if you've walked with the Lord for any length of time, you may have said those things. You probably have. And so Habakkuk now, he begins the book in the place of wrestling. Turn to the last page of the book and the last couple of verses of this book. Because I want to show you where he ends. He begins with wrestling, but he ends somewhere very different. In verse 19, he says, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. What's he doing by the end of the book? He's worshiping. 
So he begins the book with wrestling. He ends the book with worshiping. That's what I want my, to be said of my life. That's what I want to be said of my day to day, this week, this year, and the entirety of my life, is that my struggles, I've been able to turn them, so to speak, to worship. And the reason why Habakkuk is able to do that starts right here in verse 12 of chapter 1. Let's look at it together. Notice what he says first. He says, are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God? Years ago, I had a friend win one of those silent auctions. You know, you, you put your little guest down for what it is. And my friend won. And in his particular instance, it was the opportunity for him and another friend to be a part of a golf foursome with Arnold Palmer uh, and another golf great that is out there. You don't know who Arnold Palmer is. He was the Tiger Woods of his day. I don't know if Tiger Woods is any good anymore. Kyle, who's the good guy now you like? I, I put you on the spot. All right, I'm sorry. I know you're a big golf fan, you and your family. Miss Ellen, you should know. You could Rory McIlroy, that's his name, right? All right, anyway, let's move on. And so my friend wins this silent auction. He's going to go in a golf foursome with two pros, one of which is going to be this fellow by the name of Arnold Palmer. Well, during that round, Arnold Palmer does what he's supposed to do as part of this. They're chit-chatting, they're having some fun, and Arnold Palmer is supposed to give some tips to my friend. And so my friend's friend was given a tip by Arnold Palmer. You would think Arnold Palmer knows what he's doing. My friend's friend politely declined Arnold Palmer's advice, causing Palmer to simply say, well, what do I know? I'm just Arnold Palmer. <laughs> and they went on from there. Habakkuk doesn't make the same mistake as my friend's friend. Habakkuk begins here in verse 12 by reminding himself who he is interacting with. You see the story of my friend's friend? He thought somehow he knew more than Arnold Palmer. Habakkuk doesn't make that mistake. He recognizes that the one he is dealing with, God, perchance might know more than him. And so he says to him, are you not from everlasting? Maybe, just maybe, the one from everlasting might know better than I do how to operate in this situation. And so Habakkuk begins by calling to mind that truth. Here's the example, or the beginning of the example from Habakkuk. When things do not go as we have planned, or when things don't go as we think they should go, many times people get angry with God, or they get disappointed with God, or they get disenchanted with God. And what they tend to do, as I said earlier, they tend to withdraw away. Maybe in like a big, like, forget it, I'm done with you. Or just a gradual drifting away from a God they no longer believe is able or can be trusted. Habakkuk doesn't withdraw, rather he engages. And he does so in four ways that I take notice of in these verses. The first thing, as I just pointed out, is he stops and he thinks about the situation. Sometimes when things are coming at us, we're not thinking at all. And we make all sorts of mistakes. He stops and he thinks and he considers and he reminds himself of some of the basic principles of his faith. So he finds himself facing a situation that he doesn't understand. He finds himself facing a situation that he doesn't know and what he does wisely is he goes back to those things that he does know. 
And the first thing that he does is he reminds himself that God is from everlasting. Second thing he does is also in verse 12, he calls to mind the fact of God's holiness. He does that twice. Verse 12, he says, oh my God, my holy one. Verse 13, he says, you who are more who are of purer eyes than to see evil. He finds himself questioning the wisdom of God. He reminds himself that God is from everlasting. He finds himself questioning the righteousness of God. Something to the effect of a good God would never do that. And so he's questioning that. So he corrects his thinking in this time of difficulty by reminding himself of what he knows to be true that God is holy, and that God is good. I know that to be true, even though my circumstances may seem to be saying something else right now. God is from everlasting. God is holy and pure. The third thing he reminds himself is also in verse 12. He says, O Lord, you have ordained them. Referring to the Babylonians, you have ordained them as judgment. He reminds himself that God is sovereign. The Babylonians didn't simply rise up on their own create this plan to attack God's people, and God was completely oblivious to it. God allowed them to be raised up. He raised them up. He established them. He did so at the precise time that they needed to be raised up, in the precise location that they needed to be to accomplish his purposes. The circumstances we're facing, Habakkuk is facing, they weren't outside of God's control. He ordained them. He allowed them to come to pass. Habakkuk reminds himself of the sovereignty of God. And then fourth, and finally, Habakkuk reminds himself of God's faithfulness, that he can depend on God. He does that. He calls God his rock. God is his rock. God is his place of stability. God is his foundation upon which he can stand, even when his circumstances don't seem to indicate that he'll be able to stand much longer. What does Habakkuk do? He stops to think. And in that thinking, he reminds himself of the basic principles of his faith. He reminds himself of God's attributes. And then, very importantly, he applies that knowledge to his problem. There's a wonderful book that I would recommend every one of us read. It's not that big, but it is deep. You need to take your time with it. And it's a book that was written by a fellow named Arthur Pink. He wrote it about 50 years ago in, in the early 1970s. And it's, called the, it's simply called The Attributes of God. I think he goes through 12 or 13 of the attributes of God, what the scripture says about them and what those things mean. I think it would be wise for all of us to read a book like that or to read that particular book and to meditate on who God is. Here's what the jacket of that book says. It says, an unknown God can neither be trusted, served, nor worshiped. Without understanding God's attributes, we have a skewed perception of him, often one that is cast in our own image. Habakkuk here is struggling with a skewed perception until he took the time to think through what it was he was thinking. And then, as he reminded himself of those things that he knew to be true, he does a very important thing. He directs his own heart and he directs his own mind from where it was going to where it needed to be. And it is then that he, after reminding himself of the few great attributes of God, that he applies those principles to his problem. And that's the third thing we take notice of Habakkuk doing 
during this time of spiritual wrestling. Here's how I think his reasoning developed, his process of thinking. If God is the everlasting God, if he was here before anything we know came into existence, and he will be here after all of our problems and our enemies have faded away, then this Babylonian invasion, invasion is not his final word, however final that invasion might appear to be. Secondly, if God is holy, as I know him to be, then the outcome of this invasion, since it's being caused by God, will not be evil, but in the final analysis, all things work together for good. Thirdly, if God is sovereign, then this invasion is not the result of mere chance, that God is and God will continue to be and remain in control. And then finally, if God is faithful, then the victory of the Babylonian armies, which God said is going to happen over us, must be to accomplish a greater purpose for God's people. And with all of that information that he has pondered, he can conclude God has not abandoned us. We are still his people, and his promises to work all things for the good of us, his people, will come true. And so what Habakkuk has done, he has traveled this path in his mind and is able to ultimately conclude that if this invasion must happen, well, then it'll be a tool in the hand of God for the correction of his people. Habakkuk began with wrestling. He ends with worshiping. And he gets there because he stopped to think. He reminded himself of basic principles. He applied those principles to his problem and then, as we will see in the next chapter, when there was still doubt, he committed his way, he committed those doubts to God in faith. He left the matter with the Lord. Lord, I'm going to trust you, even though I don't fully even understand. And I hope I enticed you to come back next week to find out the conclusion to our story. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. Lord, I, I think, though Habakkuk's circumstances are certainly different from ours, I have to imagine every one of us here can relate with him. And we've been in situations where we're troubled by how things are operating, and it causes us as people of faith to question you to some degree. And so, Lord, give us the courage, give us the uh, ability Give us the hard attitude, Lord, to bring our questions to you, to do so in a way of humility, Lord, to do so in a way that we continue to rely on maybe the limited faith that we continue to maintain, that our eyes might be open, that our heart might be open to who you are, what you're doing, that we might entrust ourselves to you in another greater way or in a greater way. And so, Lord, I'm amazed. Here's a book, 2,500 years ago written, that many times we just sort of skim through and don't pay much attention to. And yet your holy word can speak into every area of our lives. What a gift you've given us, Lord Jesus. May the seed of your word bear much fruit for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.